Okay, so once again, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, so good to have you uh, back. This is, uh, as we just uh, mentioned, the fourth class uh, in this series uh, on navigating the employer-employer relationship with uh, Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. Um, in this uh, full series, we explore a number of topics that address the nature of the employer-employee relationship, highlighting rights and responsibilities on both sides. Uh, we encourage everyone to turn on your video if you are able, so we can feel like we are uh, together in a traditional classroom. Uh, of course, feel free to ask questions uh, or make comments by writing them in the chat box here on Zoom, or as a comment if you're watching us live on Facebook. I believe uh, Rabbi Ziering is also okay with people just unmuting and uh, asking questions, correct? Yeah, that's, Perfect. that's great. Okay. Yeah. So with that, I'll turn this to you, uh, Rabbi Ziering. Okay, great. Thank you, Evie. Um, good to see everyone. Um, okay, so this week, um, we are going to deal with the issue of, of quitting in, uh, in halacha. Um, now, quitting is a, is a very interesting topic, as we'll see, um, because it really cuts to the heart of how halacha conceptualizes the, um, the relationship between an employer and employee, and specifically um, the status of an employee, uh, and whether we view um, the, a worker as um, simply someone being paid for his time. Um, and as we'll see, um, halacha seems to go out of its way to emphasize that that's really all it is, um, and to uh, negate the possibility that we would treat a, uh, an employee as a slave, even um, temporarily. And we'll see that halacha really uh, tries to, uh, to, in, to uh, instantiate that into, into law. Um, so I'll pull up the, the sources. <clears throat> um, so as we'll see, the, um, the issue of quitting and halacha is really divided into two um, related topics. One is the question of, um, does an employee have the right to back out of a commitment and they agreed to uh, to work for a certain project um, a certain time period are they allowed to to back out um, or does halacha constrain uh, their ability to uh, to back out and the second question is uh, even in a case where we would allow and as we'll see that's most of the time um, if not always an employee to uh, to walk out of an agreement um, what are the potential consequences um, if, let's say, backing out of the deal leads to uh, to monetary losses by the uh, the on behalf of the employer? Uh, so those are the two topics, and as we'll see, they're related. But those are the two uh, halachic issues that we need to uh, to address. So just to get some of the basic sources down, um, here in uh, in source one, this is the first two mishnayot in the sixth parak of Avmitzia. Um, these first Mishnayot deal with the question of liability. So the Mishnah tells you, If you hire artisans or laborers and they deceive one another. So all they can do, they have nothing but grievance against one another, meaning under normal circumstances, there are no financial claims um, that can be levied against the party that backed out. But then the Mishnah tells you, however, if you hired workers um, to um, 
to play music at, at, a, at a wedding um, or to, um, you hired a donkey driver um, or a potter or laborers to bring flax from, from the tub in which it was, uh, it was produced. In all these cases, there is a, a monetary loss. If, um, if the worker backs out, let's take the easiest to understand there, the case of the flax, where once it's soaking, um, there's a certain amount of time um, for, that it needs to, in which it needs to be processed. Um, and if not, then the potential linen will be uh, destroyed. Um, so in such a case, then it depends. Um, if <coughs> it's easy for the employer to find someone else to do the task, so then there is no monetary responsibility on behalf of the employee. Uh, of the employee. Uh, however, if um, there is no one um, to easily be hired for the job, then they can even hire replacements at a higher rate. Um, and that expense comes from the first workers because their backing out of the deal caused this monetary loss to the employer. The second Mishnah tells us that um, if you hire um, artisans to perform work and they renege, so whoever backs out, in this case, the employee, um, their hand is, uh, they are the disadvantage. Literally, their hand is underneath, but meaning they have the legal liability. Um, and if the employer backs out, so then yado ala then he is going to be the one that's liable. And in general, anyone who diverges from the original plan is the one um, with legal liability. Um, so the first thing that we see um, in the uh, in the Mishnah is that um, if an employee backs out and the employer can easily replace the employee, then it might not be nice. Um, but as the Mishnah says, it's not nice. You can complain. You can say, we had a deal. It wasn't nice of you. You should have listened. Um, you should have kept your end of the bargain. But on a legal level, the worker has the right to back out of the deal. In certain circumstances, however, when, because of the short time frame that the employee gave to the employer to find suitable replacements, because this job is time sensitive, uh, in such a case, the worker can still back out, but they are liable. Now, what's fascinating here is that the assumption in the Mishnah is that workers can back out. Um, in some cases, they can back out and there's no legal liability. In some cases, they can back out and there is legal liability. Um, but um, the Mishnah doesn't raise the possibility here that, um, let's say, in the case where their backing out will lead to a monetary loss for the employer, that the employee can't do that because they're harming the um, the employer. Um, and that's really quite striking because normally you can't, right? You can't damage other people monetarily. Um, and usually when you're causing someone monetary loss um, intentionally, um, or you're doing something intentionally rather that causes someone monetary loss, we wouldn't just say that, well, you're liable. We might say, well, maybe you shouldn't do it. Maybe you can't do it. Um, but here that isn't entertained. Um, so why is that the case, right? Why is it the case that um, 
that you are allowed, that the, the Gemara takes it as, the Mishnah takes it as an assumption that if an employee wants to back out, he can. So here, I'll skip for a moment to number three. Um, and this comes from a very fascinating claim earlier in Baba Metziah, where the Gemara is talking about something completely different. Um, the Talmud is talking about um, the laws of lost objects, of Hashavad Aveda, the obligation to return a lost object, and um, the cases in which when you find a lost object, you're allowed to keep it. So the, um, the Talmud quotes Rava as saying, If a worker finds a lost object while he's working for his employer, he's allowed to keep the object. So Gemara says, in what case do we assume that the worker's time is his own, such that a, uh, a monetary um, boon that comes to him in the middle of working and, you know, possibly because of the work, right? He's, uh, I don't know, he's was hired to, um, to schlep, right? To carry things through from the, from the employer's house to the market. And along the way, he finds something. So he was only in that place at that time because of the job, whatever, come up with whatever case you want. Um, he's allowed to keep the object. So the Talmud says, under what circumstance is that said? So the first suggestion by the Talmud is it depends. If the worker was told by the employer, um, do this specific task, weed for me, till for me. So then, since the employer specified the task that the worker was supposed to do, so then um, when he found the lost object, it wasn't in the process of weeding or tilling or um, building or whatever the case may be. And therefore, um, it's obvious that the worker is allowed to keep the object. However, the Talmud assumes that maybe if he just said, work for me today, like I have a whole bunch of things that I need you to do, I'll pay you a flat rate for the day. So then the Talmud says, maybe in that case, because the employer um, hired this worker for anything he needs during the day, so maybe his time is not his own. Uh, and therefore, the object should go to the employer. Um, but then the Talmud rejects it and it says, no, shiny poel and he says, um, right. So I won't get into all the details here of how this contradicts Rav Nachman from uh, from um, a previous part. Um, so let's just skip that for the moment. But then the Talmud says, but wait a second. Um, Rava says, wait a second, R regardless of what's going on and what Rav Nachman said before, um, isn't it true that a laborer, a worker can always quit his job even in the middle of the day? And if that's the case, doesn't that show that the relationship is set up for the to the advantage of the employee? And therefore, maybe that explains why he should always be able to keep the lost object. Um, and he says, no, No, maybe the case is that, look, as long as he doesn't quit, so then he is an extension of the employer, and therefore the lost object goes to the employer. Um, but when he does retract, why is he allowed to retract? 
for an external reason, a different reason, because the verse says, the Torah says, that the Jews are my slaves, meaning God, my slaves, and not slaves to other slaves. Um, and here the Talmud really says, um, presents something very surprising. And it says, so if we follow the logic of the Talmud, um, it seems to be as follows. Originally, <clears throat> the Rava believes that if a worker cannot back out of a deal, then that shows that his relationship with the employer is fundamental, is intrinsic. Um, and therefore, it would make sense that if he finds a lost object during the day, it would go to the employer. However, if he can back out, so doesn't that indicate that he really is working, I don't know, for himself? Uh, he's independent and he's not fundamentally linked to the employee to the employer. And to this, the Talmud says it's not true. Maybe he is, maybe he is linked to the employer, but the reason he's allowed to back out of the deal is because you can never stop an employee from backing out of a deal because Kili bin Israel Avadim, because the Torah says that we are slaves to God. And we can't be slaves to other slaves. Now, this is a really surprising statement um, because what the Talmud here seems to be suggesting is that to say that an employee can't back out, can't quit in the middle of a job, even though as we saw in the Mishnah, sometimes that's gonna cause a monetary loss, is to essentially transform a worker into a slave and the Torah says that cannot happen, right? A laborer, a worker, an employee cannot be conceptualized as a slave. And therefore, um, he must have the ability to back out in the middle of a deal, even though it causes monetary loss, even though there may be monetary consequences, you can't fundamentally curtail his right to back out. And that seems to be why, as we saw in the first source, the Talmud is willing to entertain the... Um, financial liability for a worker who backs out and leaves the employer hanging, but it seems to take it as a given that an employer can, an employee can back out. And then the Talmud introduces this idea because if not, you've transformed an employee into a slave. Okay, let's pause there. Those are the two main ideas, right? One is liability, but with the assumption that at least quitting is permitted. It is a possibility. And the second point, which is the reason that quitting uh, seems to be fundamentally permitted um, is because otherwise you've turned an employee into a slave um, rather than a laborer. Okay, those are the two main ideas. Um, before we go on to the sources, thoughts, questions um, about what we've seen so far and what this tells us about the way that the Torah conceptualizes um, the employer-employee relationship. And if not, we will um, we'll continue to flesh these things uh, out inside. Um, okay, I don't see questions, so we will uh, we'll continue. Um, okay. <coughs> um, okay, in the middle here, um, in the continuation, the Gemara, the Gemara just gets into some of uh, some details um, of what it means um, for there to be a loss to the employer. Um, but we'll, for now, let's let's skip that and move on to uh, to flesh it out. So 
um, right off the bat, what we see, sorry, what we see is that this question of whether um, a worker can back out of a deal um, seems to, as I said, cut to the fundamental question of how do we conceptualize um, a worker in halacha. Um, the Yerushalmi um, seems to attack this head on in, in a very short piece, um, but in many ways, a uh, much, much more um, conceptually suggestive uh, formulation. So the Yerushalmi, after quoting that same Mishnah, or on the same Mishnah, says as follows, Rav Amar, Kili b'nei Yisrael avadim. The Torah says that the Jews are servants to God or slaves to God. From here we learn, Ein Yisrael konin ze'edzeh. Jews cannot buy one another. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Evid Ivri hi matnita. Yochanan said this was about a Jewish slave, Albaiti de Rav. Now Rav says, Bain Poel, Bain Balabayit Yachol Lachzorbo, both a um, worker and an employer can back out. Albaiti de Rabbi Yochanan, Poel Yachol Lachzorbo, Vilo Balabayit. So the Yerushalmi seems to quote this same idea, that there is some fundamental limitation on um, employment um, because of this idea that it weighs in, it makes, um, you know, not letting someone quit, turn someone into a slave. Um, but you have two different approaches. Rav says that ain't Israel konin zeh Jews can't buy one another. Now, this is complicated by the fact that there is an institution of, um, of slavery. Um, and in that case, you sort of can. Um, but at least when you're not actually dealing with slaves, and again, this complicates the picture of slavery, um, Rob says, um, so fundamental is it to the employer-employee relationship that you can't really acquire somebody else. You can't, you can't acquire your employee. Um, that means that the employer and the employee can always back out of a deal. Now, why would that be the case? So it seems to me that according to Rav, um, if you wouldn't allow either side to back out, that would imply some um, permanent bond, not permanent, some um, irrevocable bond between the employer and the employee, and that whichever side can't back out, the fact that you don't let people end the deal um, indicates that at some level there is a slave relationship going on here. Um, because um, if it's just a deal, right, if it's just, you know, I say I'm going to do something and you say you're going to do something, okay, that's one thing. Um, and then maybe you could protect one side or the other. But if you say that fundamentally this relationship um, cannot be permanent and irrevocable in certain ways. It's just impossible. Um, so neither side can back out because otherwise um, it would create a problematic uh, dynamic. And Rabbi Yochanan um, disagrees. Um, Rabbi Yochanan limits the drasha, and we won't get into everything he says, but to an actual every. Um, and therefore Rabbi Yochanan says, um, no, um, it's not the case that the employer can, can back out. Um, the employer is in fact limited, but uh, he agrees that the employee, the worker, um, can back out. Um, so the 
definitely Rav's formulation in the Yerushalmi, I think, pushes the Bavli even farther, um, where it says, yes, the problem with not letting um, an employee quit, and for Rav, even not letting an employer out, is because you have transformed the relationship. You've essentially made it that um, the employer has bought the employee. Um, and therefore, if the employee can't back out, that shows that he's a slave. If the employer can't back out, um, I assume what Rav would say, it's it's like, you know, final sale when you go into a store and it says, listen, you know, no returns, no refunds, um, right? If you don't let the employer back out, then what you've essentially implied is that he's bought um, the employee the employee with, uh, with no refund. Um, and that dynamic is impossible because in the end of the day, a worker is not a slave. Um, okay. Now, let's continue sort of expanding this, um, this conceptually. So if we turn now to source five, um, Tosvot comments on this Gemara and Tosvot asks, Tomar, Why do you have to tell me that a employee can back out. We know that in the later discussions in the Talmud, so there's an argument about who has the advantage in terms of monetary liability, the employer, the employee under different circumstances, but everyone agrees, as we already noted in that in that um, first discussion, everyone agrees that they can retract. Isn't it obvious? So Tosfut says, He says, maybe this position um, is following the position of the Rabbanan that, at least under the cases there, where the workers um, go up, um, in right, the price goes up. That still the employees have the upper hand um, financially in terms of how we assess uh, how much they owe. Um, now that's a bit of a surprising uh, comment by Tosfot, um, because right, what Tosfot is assuming is that right, you could have just said, listen, um, the employee can back out because otherwise you're conceptualizing him as a slave, and that's problematic. However. The question of liability is entirely independent. But Tosfot pushes it farther. And Tosfot suggests that maybe if you really take this drasha seriously, if you take this idea seriously, that an employee has to be free to back out. So maybe you have to also have to minimize liability because if you maximize liability, um, it might be that in theory, the worker could back out. But in practice, um, it's nearly impossible. So Toso seems to, to push this idea um, even, even farther. Um, and in his second comment, he writes, And now Toso comes to a surprising idea. And he says, okay, we've established that <clears throat> a worker must have the right to quit because otherwise he becomes a slave. We've suggested perhaps even more than that, that perhaps if we really believe this, then we have to side with the positions in the Talmud. Again, we'll leave the details um, to the side, but with the um, positions that minimize liability, because otherwise you're creating, if not a absolute 
um, impediment to the employee quitting, you are creating a, a um, undue burden. Um, but now Tosu flips it and he says, okay, um, but if that's the case, if we are so opposed to setting up a worker relationship that might in any way become conceptualized like a slave relationship. So then Tosavit says, um, so why are you allowed to hire yourself out um, at all, right? Um, maybe you should have taken this farther and said, listen, um, maybe you're never allowed to hire yourself out as a worker because um, inherent in employment is some type of slavery, right? I'm I'm committing to a job for the next week, for the next two weeks, for the next month. I'm I'm curtailing my freedom. I uh, you know I I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to um, go out of town, but I know I need to be up first thing in the morning to to work uh, at my job. I can't do that if I've committed to a month. So maybe you should have taken this farther, and you should have said that maybe employment. Um, definitely at times employment is fundamentally problematic. Um, and he says, no, right? You have to balance. You still can hire yourself out. Because he says in the end of the day, unless someone is an actual slave, um, where they can't back out. There's no way to back out, right? Or in the case of inevitability, he can back out, but it's not really backing out. He has to buy himself back. Um, it's not slavery. Um, and what Tosfot seems to do is set up a very interesting dynamic where on the one hand, he really pushes this idea quite far that we have to do everything in our power to make sure that um, a worker can back out um, and maybe even minimize the liability such that he doesn't just have a theoretical but a practical ability to back out because otherwise it's slavery. But on the other end, he recognizes that while you might want to conceptualize every type of work um, as especially work by time, we'll see that it might be different by task, um, but at least work where you commit to a week, a month or something like that as some sort of slavery, um, we don't. Um, and we say, Listen, in the end of the day, the fact that you can back out, even if this shares some similarities, um, it isn't slavery, even though we recognize that maybe in certain ways, all employment is a curtailment of uh, the freedoms of the employee. We understand that, but still it's not slavery. And therefore we permit um, the institution of employment. But the fact that he needs to negate the possibility um, that it would be forbidden to have employment um, shows you just how much he thinks that halacha is, on, is trying to balance, um, on the one hand, the necessity of having the possibility of employment, but recognizing the inherent dangers that employment can so easily turn into, into slavery. I see a question. Um, yes, yeah, so as Beth notes that <clears throat> um, the Talmud also argues, based on the exact same verse, that avadai heim, <clears throat> that inevitably a Jewish slave who is a slave, um, but even the Jewish slave, if after his six-year term, he has the ability, if he wants, um, at least under certain circumstances, to extend his, his um, slavery until the Yovel. Um, but if he chooses that path, so then the slave has to go to the door and have his ear pierced 
by the door. And the Talmud says, why? Why his ear? Because Ozen Shashama Barasinai, an ear that heard at Sinai, Avadai Haim, that we are the slaves of God, the law of Adim Lavadim, and therefore we can't be subservient to people, has to be pierced because he missed the message. So, yeah, as Beth says, exactly, right? So much so do we believe that we should avoid slavery, um, that even in the institution of slavery, where the Talmud does, where the, where the Torah does allow a certain type of slavery, um, we don't allow absolute slavery and eternal slavery um, between, uh, between Jews. And if someone wants to extend their slavery, even though it's not forever, but until the Yovel, we um, punish them, as it were, for not understanding that there's something inherently problematic with being subservient to other, to other people. Um, okay. Um, now, in the Sifra, in the, which is a Midrash al from the Tanitic period, same, as, same period as the Mishnah, um, you now get the flip. Um, you get a flip, an opposite point, which highlights um, something very interesting. Um, the halacha is as follows. The Torah says, When you have a slave, now we're talking about actual slaves. So um, these are um, idolatrous slaves, a, um, of a Kenani. Um, so they work forever. But Jewish slaves, so the Talmud says, how do I know that men can acquire female slaves, females can acquire male slaves? Okay, but the most surprising line is the following. When someone has a Jewish slave, you cannot work them hard, right? Too hard. And then the Sifra says, an actual Jewish slave, you can't work oppressively. But but you can um, work a, uh, a free person, meaning your employee, um, really, really hard. Now, this Sifra to me um, really, really is amazing because what this Sifra says is, look, as I understand it, there are two ways um, to highlight the ways in which we don't really um, like slavery and which the halacha really wants to prevent um, employment from becoming slavery. One is that even an actual slave, in the limited cases in which we actually have slavery, um, we don't let you work the slave oppressively because um, we may have allowed slavery begrudgingly, but we're not going um, to allow you to, um, you know, dehumanize essentially the slave, right? And work them um, harder than you would, let's say, a normal worker. Um, that's point one, right? That even within the context of slavery, we're not thrilled with it. Um, and it's only begrudging, and therefore we limit what you can demand. But then the Talmud says, but that limitation only applies to an actual slave, but a free person that you hire you can work hard. Now, why would that be the case? So I think what, what the Sifra is getting at is that um, it's not about how hard you make them work. It's about what does that indicate about the relationship? If someone is a slave, so then if you treat them badly, right, that just highlights the extent to which you've dehumanized them. Um, so we tell you, look, it's bad enough that the person's a slave, work them normally. 
But if someone hire, you know, you hire someone and the terms of the employment are clear, as long as they agree to it, you can work them really hard because in the end of the day, it may be hard, but the fact that they entered into it of their own volition and they knew what they were getting into means that the relationship is enslave-like. And therefore, what you see from the Sifra is that the, the Torah is trying to limit um, the existence of slavery in the employer-employee relationship, both by limiting the slave qualities of actual slavery, um, but in the context of employment, it's highlighting the fact that, listen, on the one hand, we can always let some, we always have to let him back out of the deal because otherwise you've enslaved him. But because once we've done that, once we've set up these parameters that make it clear that an employee is not a slave, so you can actually demand more of your employee than you could have a slave because they're entering it of their own volition, um, working them really hard doesn't um, transform that labor into slave labor. Um, okay, so if we continue, um, I want to show you how this, um, you know, plays out here. I, I, I put in seven, I'll say this outside. Um, the Pirchei Choshen notes that there is a dispute. Um, the Zera Emet, in a responsa, argues that normally a employee can back out of a deal, as we've seen. However, if when um, an employee um, is hired, he explicitly tells an employer, I am accepting this job on condition that I don't back out. So then he can't back out. Now, what the Zara Ahmed seems to believe is that this limitation um, is not fundamental, right? It's not fundamental to the employer-employee relationship that the employee not be able to back out, that the employee not have freedom. It's simply the default that we don't want you to have a relationship in, with, in which the, um, the assumption is that the employee is stuck, is enslaved as it were to the employer. But if the, um, if the employee wants to of his own volition say, you know what, I'm committing to you and I'm committing that I won't back out, that works. But as the Pidchei Choshen notes, um, the Pirchei Choshen says it's not true. The simple understanding of the later authorities is that even if the employee wants to, even if the employee says, I am committing to work for you and I am doing it on condition I don't back out, that doesn't work. Why? Because that is slavery, right? Now, is that because um, you could look at it in different ways. You could suggest that if the possibility exists that an employee can bind himself to not back out, then that will create a reality in which employers will look um, for workers who are disadvantaged and will make that deal. And therefore, we have to negate that possibility. Um, or you could just say that, no, um, it's not just that we don't want employers taking advantage of employees and making them like slaves. But it's problematic, as, as Beth noted before, um, we actually think it's a religious problem for, um, the, like, for the employee to view themselves as a slave. 
just like we do by an actual slave, where we punish them for trying to extend their slavery, right? It's not just that this is a right of the employer. Um, it's actually an expectation of the employee to recognize their freedom um, because that's religiously valuable, not just as a way of protecting the employee, but it's religiously valuable, I think, for the way the employee conceptualizes um, himself, himself or herself within the relationship. Um, so either as a um, super protection for the employee or in order to ensure that employees themselves don't come to view themselves as slaves, um, it seems as the Pitre Choshen notes that the majority view is that even if the employee wants to bind themselves such that they can't back out, we are not going to let them. It won't work. Um, that's how fundamental it is to avoid this conceptualization of an employee as a, as a slave. Um, sorry, the, the Pitre Choshen is Rav Yeshaya Bloy uh, or Blau. Um, he was a, uh, a, a rabbinic judge um, in Israel, and he wrote a, um, I have it behind me, I think, a many-volume uh, many work on um, a monetary law. Um, if you can see it here on the screen. Oh, wait, I'm sharing my screen. I'll, I'll stop share for a second. Um, if you can see here, Pitre um, Choshen, um, this is actually the right volume, and Hilchot wrote on hiring workers. Uh, it's an excellent, excellent um, set if you um, if you're interested in monetary law, um, they you know there's a volume on on uh, unemployment, there's a volume on uh, on partnerships, on damages. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a go -to, it's a good go to um, for a, a compendium of uh, of modern practical um, sock on on monetary issues. Um, okay. <clears throat> now. Um, for a for a moment on the question of of the liability, uh, so as we've seen, um, even though we are very insistent that a, um, a a a worker not be turned into a slave, and therefore we allow them to back out. As we've seen, um, if they do back out under certain circumstances, there is monetary liability um, if they caused a loss to the employer. Um, so the question we need to deal with is, um, is, is why? Um, because there's a general rule, um, as you see here in number eight, that um, normally you have a rule, what, something called kinyan dvarim, um, an acquisition of words, um, which doesn't work. Um, basically, um, if you just say, um, We'll just read this in, 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 in the English here. The Rambam says, right, title to an article purchased is not acquired by verbal agreement alone, even if witnesses have testified to such an agreement. If, for example, one said to a person, I'm selling you this house, I'm selling you this wine, I'm selling you this slave, and both agreed on the price, the purchaser was pleased and said, I have bought it, and the seller was pleased and said, I have sold it, and they said to witnesses, you be our witnesses that A made a sale and B procured a purchase, this counts as nothing, as if there had never been an oral agreement between them. The same applies to a donor and a donee in the case of a gift. Um, so one of the major problems is, okay, let's assume, as we know, that you can always back out. But why does the Talmud, why does the Mishnah even assume that if you do back out, there's going to be monetary liability? Um, that assumes that there was a reality to this agreement um, that is 
at some level legally binding, uh, even if we allow you to get out to prevent the conceptualization as a slave, um, the fact that there's legal liability implies that the deal is real. But how could it be real if in the end of the day, what you did was you said, you know, um, I'm going to work for you. <laughs> Why does that create any legal liability, right? You should say not only are you, is the employee allowed to back out, but um, there is no real commitment uh, and therefore there's no legal liability. Um, and Rashi uh, adds in number nine, that in such a case, you can't even solve the problem with, uh, with Khalipin, right? With a symbolic handing over of a, of a, of a handkerchief. Um, so why is it that if you're allowed to back out, um, why is it that nevertheless, there's enough reality to this agreement that there is liability in cases where um, loss is incurred to the employer? So here we have several models. Um, Rav Mayer of Rutenberg, um, who is um, my, my wife's favorite um, Rishon um, for reasons, you know, maybe we'll discuss at a different time, which is why my, my oldest uh, child is named Mayer after the Marami Rutenberg. Um, so Mayer of Rutenberg um, argues as follows. Um, he says, um, so the Maram says something quite surprising. Maram says, um, you know, until now we've been assuming that when the Talmud said you have to back out because um, you have to be able to back out of, a, of an employment relationship because otherwise you become a slave, that means that an employee is not a slave. The Maram Mirunberg says, well, yes and no. Um, the reason that you can back out is because if you can't back out, you'd be a full slave. But the reason that there's legal liability um, is because by hiring yourself out, at some level, you did become a slave. And therefore, an employment relationship is not a mere agreement of words. You sold something real. You sold yourself. Um, and therefore, the Maharam right, seems to suggest something, right? Again, this seems paradoxical, that we learn that you can back out from the fact that we don't want you to be a slave. We don't allow you to become a slave. But on the other hand, the reason you have liability um, is because at some level you are a slave. And therefore, when you commit to a job, you're committing to something real because you're committing of yourself. Um, now that obviously, uh, if that model is true, it, it weakens um, the claim that we've been making about how seriously the Talmud believes that employment should be distinguished uh, from slavery. But that's the argument of the Maram Mirutenberg. Um, others, however, um, suggest models that do not at all limit um, our belief that employment and, um, and slavery have to be fundamentally distinct. Um, so for example, the Ksoda Hoshen um, writes that um, when an employee hires themselves out, um, what they do is they, um, they make their assets, um, they put a lien essentially on their assets um, until they finish the work. Um, so what the Ktod argues is that um, because of, right, when, a, when an employee hires himself to an employer and he knows that there may be loss if he backs out of the deal, um, he's allowed to back out of the deal because otherwise he would be like a slave 
But in order to protect the employer, um, he doesn't just make a verbal commitment. What he's essentially doing when he makes a verbal commitment is he's putting a lien on his property that if I back out and cause you a loss, my property is leaned uh, to pay off that debt. And therefore, the commitment is real because he's actually transferring essentially a lien. He's at some level transferring his property uh, to um, the, uh, the employer. Um, <clears throat> the Ramosha Feinstein seems to argue uh, a different model. Um, and that is that maybe uh, essentially, no, um, hiring yourself out for the duration of an employment, um, that is real, right? It may not be slavery, but you are uh, essentially selling your time. Um, and therefore, um, that's real. And that's why there is a financial liability. Um, even if we let you back out, there is a reality to, to your commitment. Okay, so what we have is two models, um, whether it's you're selling your time or you're leaning your property to prevent loss and protect uh, the employer. Uh, those two models explain why, despite the fact that the employee can't be forced to work, um, he can be held liable if his quitting causes a loss to the uh, employer. Um, on the other hand, we have the Marami Rittenberg, who um, actually says that the fact that there's liability uh, is evidence of the fact that the equation between employer, uh, employee rather, and slave is um, not complete, as we know from the fact that you can back out, but is also not um, completely um, non-existent, right? There is some reality to the fact that even when you hire yourself out for a job, um, you are at some level selling yourself to your uh, employer. And that, as I said, uh, does at some level weaken uh, the conceptual argument of um, the opposition that the Talmud has of viewing a worker as, uh, as a slave. Um, okay. <clears throat> um, now, as we saw earlier in the uh, in the Choshen, um, that there are some thinkers who believe that there are that if a worker chooses to essentially enslave himself to the employer, he's allowed to. Uh, we have a parallel distinction here. So the Ridva, um Rabbi Yom Tov Asvili, um, argues that uh, in fact, um, if the only reason that an employer can back out, um, employee can back out is because it's a Kinyan Dvarim, because the acquisition of work um, is not real. However, if they were to make the obligation real by doing a Kinyan, by doing some sort of transaction, a symbolic transaction, um, so then um, he would not be able to back out. So again, the Ridva seems to um, be limiting the idea and saying, listen, um, an employee has the right to, um, to turn himself into a, a slave if he wants to. It's just not the default. Uh, but again, as we saw in the Bidchei Hoshen, the majority view rejects this. Um, and that's what the Shach writes here in 14. Um, I'll just read the English. He says, um, in um, the Ridva writes in the name of his teachers, the sages only said that a worker can back out if he hires himself out verbally. However, anyone who commits through an act of transaction, it enhances the arrangement such that he can't back out. 
In my humble opinion, it seems that the other halachic authorities who don't draw this distinction don't follow this view. They are correct in my humble opinion. Also, based on the reasoning of the children of Israel are servant to me and not servants to servants, it implies that, implies that a worker can back out in any instance. Um, right, so the, the Shach argues that no, again, here too, it can't just be that the reason that an employee can back out is because of a technicality that he never really committed because the argument of the Talmud seems to be much more fundamental. And therefore, um, he argues that the majority view is that a servant, a, a worker rather, can always back out no matter how many deals he makes, no matter what he does to um, concretize um, his agreement. He cannot um, enslave himself because that's fundamentally um, anathema to the nature of the employee-employer uh, relationship. Um, what I gave you here in 15 and 16 um, are two different analyses um, of, uh, of the Rushalmi's comments that we saw above, um, which attack the idea of, of employment being viewed as, as slavery. Um, uh, we'll quickly look at them. Um, the Nitzvot writes, the Nitzvot HaMishpat writes, V'katub etzli perish Yerushalmi mikvar. I've seen the Rushami, the Rav Sober, the Lekakinin, Klaumi, the right of the Pole Israel. Rav believes that there is no acquisition at all in a worker. The only time that you can acquire someone is an actual slavery. Rock, but every Bisman Ha Yovel, Rancho Yovel No Hague. When slavery applies, so then there is, and skipping down, says Rabbi Yochanan Sober, David Ivrihu, the Yesh Bo Kinin. Um, so the Nativot argues that perhaps, as we've seen, um, there is some disagreement about this idea that an employee is not a slave. Um, and the Marami Rutenberg believes that maybe at some level an employee is a slave. Um, so the Nativot Amishpat argues that, in fact, that is the dispute in the Yerushalmi, that Rav says that Rav, who says that the employer and the employee can both back out, he believes that there is no um, acquisition of the person, uh, the personhood of the employee at all. And that's why everyone can back out. Rabbi Yochanan believes that no, like we saw already in the Marami Rutenberg, um, an employee is at some level a slave. The reason he can back out is because even slavery itself is not forever. And even slavery itself, a slave could buy himself back. Uh, and therefore he argues that in the end of the day, the question of whether we really believe that an empl employment shares nothing with slavery is itself the dispute in the Yerushalmi. Um, but again, if that's the case, then as we've seen, the majority view seems to be that we side with the position that um, that it's not slavery, right? That seems to be what emerges from the Shach, from the Pitchei Choshen, who say that every um, possible limitation, such as explicitly making a deal that you're not going to back out, or making a Kenyan, right, making an acquisition to try to concretize your deal to not back out, none of that is going to work because we tr we do everything in our power to make it that you can never, um, an employee can never be stuck in a situation that would transform them uh, into a a slave. Um, right, and the Archa Sholchan makes this point 
uh, very clear that the that the real halacha that we learn from this is that um, you're just not able uh, to bind yourself uh, in this way. Okay. Um, so again, to, to review what we've seen so far, um, we've seen two, there are two main questions in the issue of quitting. One is, is an employee allowed to quit? And the second is, if they do, is there liability? Um, now to work backwards um, from how we started. The Talmud is very clear, an employee can back out. And the reason is, according to the, the Bavli, um, because otherwise the employee will be viewed as a slave. Um, according to what we saw in the Nativoda Mishpat, this might actually be a dispute in the Yerushalmi, where Rav, who says that an employer and an employee can back out, that indicates that um, the limitations on um, on um, irrevocable employment is because the an irrevocable deal would transform employment into slavery, uh, and therefore the employer and the employee can walk out. Uh, Rabbi Yochan, on the other hand, believes that um, an employee can walk out, but an employer cannot. Uh, and based on this, Rabbi Yochanan believes that no, employment really is slavery, but just like slavery, um, the slave is not actually fully a slave, um, meaning that they can get out of it, at least in theory, because even slavery can't be permanent. So employment definitely can't uh, be permanent. Um, one way or the other, um, either because you believe that uh, employment can't be slavery, or because even slavery can't be permanent, um, an employee can always uh, walk out of the deal. Nevertheless, there's a certain amount of liability. Um, now, why is there liability? So we saw three possibilities. Um, one is because, um, according to Mamarami Rutenberg, um, our assumption that employment is not slavery at all is not fully true. It is and it isn't. It's not fully slavery, and therefore you can walk out. Um, but at some level, you are selling yourself, and therefore there's a reality to the commitment that an employee makes to the employer. And it's that reality that creates the legal liability. Um, and then we saw two other models which maintain the notion that an employee is not a slave and nevertheless explain why there could be liability, either because the employee essentially puts a lien on his property to protect the employer from loss, or because the employee is selling uh, his time and there is reality uh, to that. Um, and then we saw two cases uh, that seemed to test whether we believe that our opposition to an employee being a, viewed as a slave is only a default or is fundamental. Uh, and that is one, whether when a employee um, concretizes their deal with a formal acquisition, does that prevent them from backing out? The Rdva says, yes, the majority view seems to be that no, even then they can back out because otherwise they would be a slave. Uh, and the second is what if they explicitly make a condition I won't back out? And again, the Pitchei notes the majority view um, is that that seems uh, not to work um, because again, that would transform the worker um, into a slave. Um, okay. I see we have five minutes left. So let me just make a few, uh, a few brief points. Um, Tosvot suggests here in 18 that this entire question um, only applies to uh, an hourly worker, but not a worker hired by task, or what we call in Hebrew, a kablan, 
versus a poel or a sahir. Um, someone who sells his time. Essentially what Tosfat says is if someone sells their time, so then if they can't back out, well, then they're a slave essentially. But if someone doesn't sell their time, they commit to accomplishing a task, right? You hire a tailor um, and they don't sell their time. They sell you a suit. Um, so then um, because the nature of the relationship is not one which can be slavery, because they're not committing their time to you. They're not making them yours. They're not making, the employee is not making himself the employers. He's, it's like a store owner. He's selling something. Um, it just happens to be that it's custom made. So in that case, because there is no slavery um, in the commitment, essentially he is a seller. He's a merchant. He's a contractor rather than a worker. Um, Rabbeinu Tam argues then in such a case, these limitations do not apply. Uh, and in fact, he can be legally prevented um, from, from retracting. Um, and this, this is uh, ruled on Lahalacha by the Bithchechosh, and it does seem to be um, a, uh, a widely accepted um, position. <coughs> um, now, and we only have four minutes left, so I won't be able to go through all the questions of liability, but just to tell you what you have here, um, as you see, the question of exactly how you define liability is, uh, is quite complicated. Um, and then to that extent, I gave you, um, I simply gave you the entire, um, all the relevant halachot here um, in, um, in the Shulchan Aruch. Um, and I gave you as well a, a summary here in the, uh, the Pitchi Choshen um, for so, some modern um, for some modern uh, takes on it. Um, I just wanted to draw attention to one idea that I did find um, um, fascinating um, is that we've been talking about this entirely from the vantage point of the employee. Um, as we saw already there, the employer also under certain circumstances can back out. Um, however, uh, interestingly, the some postgame argue that in a case where the employee is poor, um, the employer can never back out um, because um, hiring a, a poor worker um, is a, a takes on the status of a vow. Um, so I, I can't get into that too much here, but I think um, you have to remember the, that the flip side of this is that there are certain responsibilities from the employer to the employee. Um, and you know, recognizing the power dynamic, which we've been talking about, where usually the employer has the upper hand, um, this idea that an employer might not be able to back out or might not to be able to back out um, in a case where the employee is particularly vulnerable, vulnerable um, highlights, I think, very important things about um, how we view this relationship. Um, in 24, um, and you can see, even though I'm not full of finished with the sources, but again, as I mentioned in the past, I don't put all the sources here uh, with the plan of going through them. You know, if you're interested with the topic, I want you to have reading material to look at it. Um, so I gave you the Pitchei Choshen, uh, the entire chapter on, uh, on Chazar and Apoel, uh, where he goes through the details of what we've seen um, in, right, in terms of the ability of, of a worker to back out um, and exactly how you assess the, um, the liability issues in a case where a, uh, a worker does back out and, um, and loss is incurred. So if you're interested in looking into the details of that, so you have that here in the Pitchei Choshen, and I highlighted some of the interesting conceptual issues 
uh, that appear in the footnotes there, uh, which I've cut out, and that's in uh, in 25. Um, but because it is uh, it is time, so I will uh, I will leave it there. And if there are specific issues you want to bring out, um, then now is the time. But thank you everyone for uh, for coming. Um, and um, uh, yeah, um, next week, uh, just to tell you where we're going, uh, you know, the, these uh, four the first four weeks we've really dealt with um, the halakhic issues that deal with the nature of the of the employee employer. Uh, relationship again today focusing on the extent to which employment uh, is slavery um, in the next two issues we're going to deal with um, cases in which uh, employment raises uh, moral issues that are not tied directly uh, to the um, the actual job per se um, specifically what do you do when you have a um, when unethical activity is being demanded of you um, in your job uh, either by an employer an employee a partner uh, and then uh, in the last week, we're going to deal with whistleblowing, um, which is when you might not be involved in it yourself, but uh, what is the responsibility of an employee um, to, uh, to, to, to save other people from unethical behavior when there might be a loss to themselves um, by, um, by outing their employees. So those, that's the, the last two weeks. Um, and um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Should we uh, take a couple questions or maybe not yeah, today? Of course, if there's any questions. Okay. I am. Um, yeah, more, maybe we more can than take open. two questions. And if anyone has a question, uh, we can take a couple. And if not, we'll see each other again next week. Okay. So, okay, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi uh, Ziering. And um, thanks everyone who joined us uh, here today uh, on Zoom, on Facebook, and also on Drisha Live. Uh, we have another live class tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. Uh, it will be the third class, I believe, in the series, uh, The Invention of the Seven-Day uh, Week with Dr. Ezra uh, W. Zuckerman-Sivan. Um, you're also always uh, welcome to find, find out more information about classes that are happening right now and uh, upcoming uh, class offerings, as well as the registration link for classes on our website, www.dresha.org/classes. Uh, you can also watch the classes live at www.dresha.org/live. Thanks again, uh, Rabbi Ziering, uh, for the opportunity to once again learn with you this week. And again, uh, we hope to see everyone uh, here at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha tomorrow or soon.